except for a few characters who entirely escape imitated desire. In Dostoevsky, there is no longer any love without jealousy, any friendship without envy, any attraction without repulsion. The characters insult each other, spit in each other's faces, and minutes later they fall at the enemy's feet. They abjectly beg mercy. This fascination coupled with hatred is no different in principle from Proustian snobbism and Stendhalian vanity. The inevitable consequences of desire copied from another desire are envy, jealousy, and impotent hatred. As one moves from Stendhal to Proust and from Proust to Dostoevsky, the closer the mediator comes, the more bitter are the fruits of triangular desire. So in this passage, Girard describes a scenario that he elsewhere designates the underground. This is the term he derives from Dostoevsky, who is the focus of this passage. Dostoevsky, in his novella Notes from Underground, imagines a man deeply tormented by his rivalry, jealousy, hatred, and who has retreated right to the so-called underground to isolate himself from society. And yet this self-isolation is in fact symptomatic of the way that he cannot let go of his fascination with the other. In other words, with these mediators and models who he seemingly irrationally and arbitrarily gives the power to determine the objects of his desire, to set the course of his desire. So there's no intrinsic superiority of these figures. And here, the distinction can be illustrated with the comparison of Don Quixote, who Girard discusses at the beginning of this account. So in this earlier moment embodied by Don Quixote, yes, this desire is strangely slavish and obsessive about a mediator who has been granted the power to set the course of desire. And yet Don Quixote's mediator is a heroic literary character, right? Who's set at a certain distance from him and who seems to be intrinsically superior. And so there can't be any rivalry between them because of this distance between them and because of this vertical um, shape of the triangle, right? Amadis, uh, Don Quixote's hero, is vertically set above him. And so there can be no... Um, rivalry between them because of that um, because of that intrinsic superiority because of that positioning above him now when we flip the relation to the mediator from vertical to horizontal in other words when the mediator and model occupies the same social stratum as me my idolization my strange um, devotion to them will seem perhaps perverse, perhaps arbitrary. And yet the power that they hold over me, as Girard argues, we can see over and over again in Dostoevsky's work, is no no less than the power that Amadis holds over Don Quixote's consciousness. So this is, again, the 
evolution from external mediation in which my mediator is set above me to internal mediation in which my mediator is right next to me, right? In which my mediator occupies the same social realm as me, is ostensibly my equal. And therefore, there's no um, doctrine of social superiority that explains why the mediator should seem to have the things that I desire when I do not have them. And this is the source of the, the conflict and rivalry, right? Because on one hand, the mediator, because I have set the mediator as my, not because the objects are intrinsically valuable, but because I have given the mediator the power to determine the direction of my desire, the fact that the mediator, who's ostensibly my social equal, possesses these things that I do not possess, becomes the source of this jealousy, envy, and impotent hatred that Gerard refers to, citing Stendhal in this passage. So, another term that I mentioned before that's a relevant one for thinking about this scenario is obscurantist other interest. So this is Gerard's um, kind of... um, subversion of a common, a much more common and well-known term, which would be enlightened self-interest. So the idea of that is that in modern societies, right, where we do not supposedly have arbitrary hierarchies, we don't have other people who are given the power to determine the course of our lives. Instead, we determine that ourselves. And assuming we are equipped with the relevant knowledge and information, we can determine that well. So this is enlightened self-interest. We are autonomous individuals determining our own interests in accordance with our direct apprehension of information about the world. So what is obscurantist other interest? It's essentially the underground flip side of enlightened self-interest. So on the surface, we have this doctrine of enlightened self-interest, which is part of this romantic lie of individual autonomy. But beneath that, we have this seething realm of envy, hatred, rivalry, resentment. And so within this realm, we are, in fact, rather than seeing our social equals as equals, we are strangely placing them above us and allowing them to determine the course of our desire, allowing them to set or designate the objects of our desire. But because they seem to have these things, and we do not, we regard them with immense envy, resentment, and hatred. So why is this obscurantist other interests? So it is other interests because we are not so much self-interested because we are actually more interested in what the other desires or has, because that is what imitatively we look to in order to determine our self-interest. Our self-interest passes through the other, right? So other interest is prior to self-interest. We don't know what we want until we see what some model wants. And therefore we, we copy or we imitate the desire of our model. So that's other interest. Why is it obscurantist? Well, because of this modern doctrine of, of self-interest, of autonomous individual desire, we must obscure We must mystify the nature of this mediated, other-determined desire. So obscurantist other interest is an other interest that is concealed 
that is um, disguised from ourselves and from others that we cannot fully acknowledge. So interestingly, in Superman in the Underground, Girard identifies as the the key figure for this type of relationship to the other, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and the other who he has given the power to set the course of his desire, to designate his objects of desire, is the composer Richard Wagner, who early in his career Nietzsche idolizes and regards as the sort of be-all and end-all of European civilization and culture in his time. And towards the end of his career, he regards Wagner in the opposite way, as a symptom of everything that is degraded and debased about the civilization around him. So, interestingly, Nietzsche is someone who himself wrote extensively about this concept of ressentiment, or resentment, as a sort of um, underside of the modern um, egalitarian doctrines that he, Nietzsche, regarded as derived from Christianity. The beneath egalitarianism is resentment of social superiors. So, for Girard, Nietzsche was both insightful in that he offered some of the most powerful accounts of this um, relationship to the other, which is determined by envy and resentment. But at the same time, Nietzsche was unable to see his own enmeshment in that precise dynamic. And so, according to Girard's critique, he had to conceal it under this mystification, which was the doctrine of the will to power. So the will to power in Girard's reading is another version of this romantic lie. It's another version of this idea of a purely autonomous, not other determined um, form of desire. And according to Girard, Nietzsche needed to elaborate this in order to obscure the intensity of his own um, involvement in these kinds of triangular structures, not only with Wagner, but with several other intellectual peers who became, as Girard discusses, both romantic rivals and intellectual and philosophical rivals. So Nietzsche is both a source of insight and someone who's fundamentally blind to these dynamics, particularly in the way that they determine his own relationship to others. So something that's important in Superman in the Underground, as well as as we saw in Innovation and Repetition, is that Girard is interested in how these dynamics shape intellectual life itself, right? Shape the life and works, which he doesn't see as entirely separable, of philosophers and intellectuals. So what's interesting to note here is Girard himself is in a sense, mimetically um, related to Nietzsche, because he sees Nietzsche as a source of a number of his insights, as we'll discuss later. And yet, he also essentially sees Nietzsche as as an inferior guide to these dynamics to a figure like Dostoevsky, a novelist, who who Nietzsche himself actually saw as um, a highly insightful figure for understanding the psychology of modern societies. And so it's important to see that for Girard, Nietzsche is actually 
incapable of seeing things or or is obligated to obscure things that Dostoevsky's work reveals. In particular, the way that there is and can be no genuinely autonomous desire, right? That this desire is always mediated by the other. So this brings me to a final point, which is that Girard actually names the process by which Dostoevsky and other novelists like Proust arrive at this kind of insight into mediated desire. He calls this conversion, right? And this novelistic conversion is the process by which these novelists gain the insight into the mediated structure of desire. And so while this work is not as overtly shaped by Christian sensibilities as perhaps Gerard's later work will be, and does not engage directly with Christian revelation to the same extent, it does attribute the revelatory power of these fictions to a process of conversion that um, he essentially poses in relatively explicit Christian terms, right? which is uh, a process by which the novelist comes to see the nature of desire as mediated, and thus gains the power to represent it, right? And to, to puncture the romantic lie and instead offer novelistic truth. This is in contrast to philosophical and intellectual precursors like Freud and Nietzsche, both of whom Girard discusses in Superman in the Underground, who come close to these insights, but ultimately find ways of obscuring them and of avoiding the, the confrontation with the mediated structure of desire. So these are all points that we can discuss further um, and that I also think are, are important to keep in mind as we move further into Girard's work and think about the role that he later um, attributes to Christian revelation in illuminating these structures of desire as well as the structure of the scapegoat mechanism. So here is the novelists who have the insights that the intellectuals ultimately shy away from. Later, it is the, um, the, the biblical texts, the scriptures, that similarly offer insights into things that some modern intellectuals like Nietzsche come close to recognizing, but ultimately are unable to. So thank you, and I look forward to discussing all of this with you.